everybody to another episode of Cash Grab Cinema. I'm Josh. And I'm Rachel. Yeah, welcome to the podcast my mom says is her top three favorite. <laughs> um, tonight, we are delving in to what can only be termed a modern day classic. I am talking, of course, about the 2001 Left Behind the movie. Not the Nicolas Cage joint. But the Kirk Cameron one. That's right. So we're going to be looking... <laughs> so it's a miracle of a movie. I actually can't stand it when when reviews say uh, in the blurbs on the DVD case, it's a miracle of a movie. But let me tell you, folks, this here is a miracle of a movie. It's a miracle that it got made in the first place. Um, it's a miracle that as many people went to see it as, as they did. It wasn't really that many, though. <laughs> It wasn't. This movie, it came out in 2001. Okay. Is this the movie that catapulted Kirk Cameron from Growing Pains, Kirk Cameron, to the Christian, I'm going to say icon, for lack of a better word, that's, Kirk Cameron that we know today? That's true. I mean, we all knew that little Mikey Seaver was going to grow up someday. But what we didn't know, Alan Thicke knew. I mean, does, is it true that Alan Thicke really can't stand Kirk Cameron? This is, I don't know if it's true or not. I've heard uh, rumors that yeah, Alan Thicke and Alan Kirk Thicke. Cameron did not, not get along on the oh. set of Growing Pains. I was going to say, Alan Thicke, sign off. How do you feel about that? But he died of a heart attack. I'm going to cut all this. <laughs> <laughs> the movie starts off with... A bunch of very, very sort of nondescript shots around uh, a Middle Eastern city. I mean, there are certain landmarks, like there's there's the Dome of the Rock, right? That you this see. is what I got from the opening. Go on. It is an easily a 10-minute Holy Land commercial. <laughs> Do you remember those daytime TV commercials slash infomercials for Holy Land vacations? Yeah. That's yeah. what I thought this was. Right. Well, it's interesting, and this is one of the observations I had really early on. This movie looks like from a different time. It was made into, it was shot in 2000, I guess, released in 2001. But but it looks like a sort of Murder, She Wrote or Matlock. Like some sort of procedural Honestly, drama from the 80s. that is a slight against Murder, <laughs> She Wrote and Matlock. This movie... <laughs> The next scene after the Holy Land commercial is Kirk Cameron in a wheat field. So everything is very bland and flat, but wheat fields are bland and flat. But it's actually a theme that they... It just keeps going. <laughs> everything is bland and flat. The background, the stages, the clothing, the hair, the makeup or lack thereof. <laughs> bland and flat. There's so little color. Everything's all blown out. This movie cost over $4 million to make. All I can see is somebody left there with $3 million. <laughs> there was there was a very strange... Not It's not sepia. It's just like a dirty brown sort of filter. They were using the Coca-Cola filter. <laughs> black and blank check. Obviously. Yeah, it's very, it's very, very bland. All the lighting... The lighting choices are very strange, and, and we can get... The beginning after the wheat field, this whole movie really is kissing Israel's butt. But you are saying that's a very, you know, preacher's son over here. You're <laughs> saying that's a very Christian, modern Christian thing to be kissing Israel's booty. Yeah. Before we, yeah, before we really delve into the plot, I should mention that I was raised very religious and uh, I knew from a very young age all about the stories that take place in the book of Revelation. If you found somebody's abandoned clothes on the side of the road, you'd know immediately the rapture. That would be my first thought. There's just like, uh, that's some rapture stuff right there, friend. That It looks like a rapture. Before we leave the wheat field, there is a barrage of military jets coming. Is this a well CGI'd high budget barrage of jet planes? No, it is not. <laughs> it is. First of all, it looks like somebody just had a field day in Photoshop and got some 2D cutouts of jet planes. They superimposed them onto the footage. They couldn't even get more than one kind of jet. No, there's. Everyone in the world has the one kind of jet. Just use that over and over and, again. And somebody really went crazy because there's one shot where there's like. <laughs> 
47 in the sky. <laughs> All I can think is like, what military has this much money that they, they can throw up like hundreds of bets <laughs> all in the same all location? And on the one battle, use it all in this one location. Now maybe there's different armies all attacking Jerusalem at the same time, but you wouldn't know it because they all have the same plane. They all look the same. They leave the wheat field, this reporter and the wheat grower, they go into his shack. I thought they were cutting to a different scene. <laughs> Until I saw those guys in it. But they're just in an Israeli military bunker that's under the shack, under the wheat field. Like, it makes no sense. Which explains why it was such a high-priority target for those uh, for those jet planes. <laughs> all I can think is, like, of all the places to send, like, a butt-ton of jet planes, a wheat field? I mean, that's strange. But, yeah, they walk into the shed, and all of a sudden there's a military HQ... <laughs> It's like Minority Report in there. They got screens everywhere. There's a mind-predicting ball machine to the left. <laughs> but it's really strange because there's this farmer scientist fellow and just... Farmer military scientist fellow. And just the, this random reporter. I mean, imagine Anderson Cooper just walking into a military HQ. I doubt that would happen. Well, I mean, whoa. You just went from random reporter to Silver Fox. That's the Silver Fox. You're right. He could do anything. <laughs> Watch yourself. Kirk Cameron rushes back outside. I'm gonna get the truth. Takes his cam <laughs> takes his camera that's hooked up to nothing. And a microphone also hooked up to nothing. And starts live broadcasting to the world these jet planes that are now being incinerated by some invisible force field. And then randomly a man who Looks like Mel Brooks. Looks, what it looks, I thought it was Mel Brooks. <laughs> he he looks like a guy who has the Jerusalem syndrome, which is a real thing. It comes up to him, starts spouting off Bible-y words, and then wanders away again. I couldn't even hear what he was saying. Oh, that's just crazy Abby. He says that all the time. He just... thinks he's Jesus recoming. You know what? You know what was what gave Kirk Cameron and that camera the ability to broadcast to the world his capturing of the truth, hmm. the Holy Spirit. After that, we meet uh, this dark, tall, dark, chiseled fellow named Ray Steele, the pilot. The pilot. He's everything an airline pilot should be. They couldn't even try to make him likable. He's so unlikable. He's leaving. To fly his jet plane, and it's his son's birthday that day. Just like, and he didn't even get him a present. Just like, well, I have to go to England get your present. Be back in three days. See your wife. Why are you crying? Cause our son's so sad. <laughs> go tell it to your God at church. We meet Ray's perfect family, and Ray, by the way, this guy, uh, what's his name? Brad Jones, Brad Johnson, Brad Johnson, I think is the actor's name. If I'm wrong, sorry. But we meet him, and he's like he's like Josh Brolin with a lobotomy. He is barely there. He is not emoting. And his family looks like they have just come off the set of a Swiffer commercial. I mean, they are... Except for the daughter, the teenager. Mm. They clearly show that she is also in the wrong... She has a nose ring. She has a nose ring. She's going to miss her brother's party as well because she has to go back to college to take her exams. It's so subtly over the top. <laughs> How much they were just like, well, she's in a liberal college. She's definitely not getting raptured. See, kids? See, kids, don't go to college because if so, you will no longer be right with Jesus. Unless you go to Liberty University. Thanks, Jerry Falwell. <laughs> I mean, BJU. Well, shout out. Bob Jones. <laughs> Where you can't hold hands. <laughs> That's a blanket can't hold hands, though. So they hate your love no matter what. That's a great slogan. <laughs> we hate your love. So Ray's about to leave his house, and then we get, I think, one of the best gifts of this film. I know him as Conrad from Matlock. Rachel says that he's on Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah. I don't remember his name, but he's the hot one from Walker, Texas Ranger. <laughs> I remember from Matlock, and he was awesome. Conrad was my favorite because he's he was the, the only... investigator. He's the only character in this movie acting. Everyone else is just reading. 
Yeah. I mean, his 12 seconds in this doorway right before he goes to the birthday party out acts the in- Ray Steele's entire family. The, everything that they've done since we've met them three minutes ago. Granted, two of them are just children, but the other two are adults. They should be able to act a bit better than how they're delivering this stuff. Just like it's painful for them to be there. Actually, for the pilot guy, there's no emotion whatsoever. The whole movie, you can't tell what he's thinking. He's like Hank Hill. <laughs> Ray Ray's off to the airport, and we cut we cut back to Buck, the reporter, who's on the case. He's looking for answers, Rachel. He's looking for the truth. The ju- answers for those planes in Jerusalem. And what I love is he gets a phone call, says, meet me in our usual place. Why isn't their usual place a coffee shop? Their usual place is an abandoned warehouse. <laughs> I think the director might have seen um, All the President's Men. Like, every reporter. I get that. They get their like, scoop in it. Yes, I definitely get that sort of, like, Nixon Watergate feel from it. But why use the phrase, in our usual place? <laughs> yeah. Not every story is Watergate. <laughs> Sometimes you are, you know, you're telling a story that you want to show that it's this huge story, but it comes off like your Neil Breen and Fateful Findings. And it's just like, that's right, all the conspiracies and all the business and industry. The, the guy who asked for this clandestine meeting watched that movie right before this, and he was like, boom, delivering it like that. This is brilliant. I love Neil Breen. <laughs> and we love Neil Breen. Keep on going, Neil. During this scene, Kirk Cameron has one of my favorite lines. There's some amazing zinger lines in here that are said in a way as if this is a common phrase that's said all the time, but it is so not. Buck meets with this fella, and he's talking really fast, and he's really excited, and Buck says, Knock it down a couple of thousand RPMs. <laughs> Look, if you get me this story, I will work it to the bone. It's <laughs> a, it's a great... I mean, what do you expect from somebody? Here's an actual Kirk Cameron quote he said in real life. I could have anything I wanted, and if I didn't have it, it's because I didn't want it. (laughs) Wrap your mind around that. He's just a powerful 80s businesswoman, and he knows what he wants. He's got bonitis. (laughs) We have the scene between Buck and this, this informant. That I can't think of the name of right now. Dirk? His name is Dirk, I think. Then we cut back over to Ray, who's in in the cockpit of his plane, doing his airplane pilot stuff. And it's amazing, these two guys in the cockpit and their airline pilot acting. It's like, you know, they watched watched Airplane. They were just like, yeah, they kind of did that. Whatever. I'll be Kareem, you know. Everybody wants to be Kareem. (laughs) Who wouldn't? This whole movie is very, I'm going to be generous and say just dismissive of the Middle East as a whole and refers to people as the Arabs the whole time. (laughs) To Um, be fair, they don't go hard A. They say the Arabs, but still. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a good thing. You don't, I don't watch that part and feel good about what he just said. (laughs) Right. It doesn't feel like, oh, Kirk Cameron definitely has Middle Eastern friends or anyone who identifies as Muslim as neighbors. Because he doesn't. <laughs> During the rapture, which starts to happen on the airplane, the one chic character, I'm just assuming he's chic based off of his head wrap, doesn't get raptured. No, that's very and clear. And he's the only other than white Christian on the airplane. Yeah. Another really strange thing. So so we're on the airplane. Kirk Cameron's there. He has a little banter with, with the flight attendant. We find out that the flight attendant <laughs> has gotten a great new job. She's gone from being a flight attendant to working at the UN. Thanks, Buck. That's a heck of a shift. In this part, you realize Kirk Cameron's Buck character is a genuinely nice guy, just trying to do his job, puts himself out there in dangerous situations to do his job well. The movie lets you know God doesn't care if you're nice, because if you're not a Christian, you're not getting raptured. If you're not the right kind of Protestant Christian, you will be left behind. If you're not the right upper middle class or better Because most of the people in first class were raptured, and the in people the in economy were just left behind. In the in the plane, there's, and it's so weird that this old lady, she wakes up and her husband's not there, and her and Kirk Cameron have this little shtick about, like, he's like, all right, lady, whatever, your husband's disappeared. And then he looks down, and there's 
his clothes. Oh my god. But you see the people in coach, and coach is pretty much there's like four people missing, and everybody else is still there. Then you see the first class, and almost everybody is gone. So percentage-wise, the rich people are doing better. I really do want to just say that because I can't know for sure. But this movie feels mildly racist and quite classist. Oh, yeah, sure. Which is very strange. For a Christian tale. I was going to say very strange for such a poorly made movie to think it's better than anyone. (laughs) (laughs) This was the most expensive Christian film ever made up to that date. Over $4 million, and it grossed overall... Something like it made it. It made two hundred thousand dollars in the box office. It made collected four point two. Grossed overall four million two hundred twenty four thousand dollars. Barely like that's like a hundred dollar profit, <laughs> which is crazy if you consider the robe, which was made sometime in the fifties. Yep. Also with a budget of around three point nine million, made thirty five million dollars worldwide oh yeah and it was like a huge production it's like an opus a biblical opus this movie was made in the 2000s and couldn't even come close maybe that's a good thing maybe it just goes to show that you know the american viewing audience is a lot different these days i think american viewing audiences still would digest biblical movies like well, the passion it was the huge. passion there was that nativity movie not that many years ago that did quite well this movie just sucks <laughs> there's a baby on the plane before the rapture happens you see that flight attendant interact with it like a cute baby and then after the husband the elderly husband gets raptured and you have that funny banter with her and Kirk Cameron. Other people then start to notice that their family members have been raptured. I get that most people on the plane were probably asleep because they're trying to make us think it's nighttime. Why didn't the lady with the baby know? She was holding it. How did she not notice her baby was gone? She's just a negligent parent. That's why she didn't get raptured, Rachel. I don't think you're seeing all the... Listen, the people in coach, they're poor, they're dirty, they don't take care of their kids. That's why they get their kids taken away, either by the state or by God. They turn the plane around and get back to O'Hare in Chicago. We are treated to some of the most amazing extras acting ever, as as we see the airport is run amok with people pushing and shoving and trying to get on planes, and the whole airport shut down and no planes are taking off. And there's that's when we see the first of many. Abandoned dogs. Yes. On yes. leashes. It was a very cute, tiny little dog that was abandoned. Very sad. Josh, I just want you to know that that, that dog wasn't actually abandoned. It's actually, now that it's 2017, it's pretty sad. That dog that, is dead. That dog is dead Yeah, now. that's what I wanted to bring it back around to. He wasn't abandoned. He's dead now. He's been raptured. He's finally got raptured. <laughs> Circle of life. Uh, there's some amazing extras acting and there's some amazing extras dialogue it's always funny to hear like a random line that sort of made it into the final cut and while Kirk Cameron and and Ray are walking through the airport uh, we hear some of the crowd members as they're shoving against the National Guard fellas one of them says military arrest That's how it works. What is that? <laughs> Ray gets back home. He finds that his wife and his son are gone. They have disappeared just like everybody on the plane. Their clothes are left behind. And Ray deeply mourns the loss of his wife and son. Like Without cra- changing his facial expressions. It <laughs> looks like he got sand in his eyes. <laughs> so his eyes are watering. But his face looks the same. And then when he discovers his wife's clothes with her wedding ring... And then her crucifix still there. He does scrunch up his face much like a toddler would when he doesn't want to take a nap. And he throws like a mild tantrum. But that's the most emotion you see through this whole film from him. Not to throw it back to Neil Breen, but it was akin to the Jim suicide scene from, again, Fateful Findings. um, Where you see Neil Breen find his friend shot dead and then it cuts to this really awkward scene he all all of a sudden has blood all over his face i can't believe you committed suicide (laughs) how could you commit suicide the pilot's daughter during this whole rapture thing she's on a car ride home 
from taking her exams at college because that's how it works. <laughs> and she's on the cell phone and doesn't notice an almost 20 car pileup until she almost crashes into it. The real miracle is that she made it this far in life. <laughs> With her nose ring. <laughs> that's why she didn't get raptured. And there's all these, it's so strange that this entire film, it takes such great pains to keep reminding you of what's happening with visual imagery. We see shots of cars stopped and school buses off on the side of the road and people crying and dogs off by themselves with no owners. Trash cans very gently laid on their side and trash kind of falling out. Right. Four million dollars. It's this very suburban idea of what the apocalypse would look like. Like, there's some trash on the ground and some cars are slightly up on a curve. Everything else is pretty much the same. They tried to make it look like maybe this person was homeless after the rapture, shuffling down the street. There's just a very normal-looking guy walking slowly down the sidewalk. <laughs> but you know they think he's homeless because he's carrying a bag. <laughs> That's the mark right there. Nothing scarier than that. <laughs> Suburbia has become Skid Row. It's in the book of Revelations, people. <laughs> a man with a bag. Watch yourself. <laughs> it really boggles my mind about this point. Because at this point, we're like 30, 40 minutes into the movie easy. There's been a lot of movie so far. Most and of this movie is us as the audience watching the movie, watching the characters in the movie watch television. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge part of it. It's 20% easily. And so much of the exposition is us watching the characters watch television. It's such a lazy way to get out your exposition. I would have rather just read it on the screen. And you know what makes exposition satisfying is that typically it will drive characters, it will inform them, and they'll go on to a next step. But it's like every single person in this movie, save for Dirk, who gets uh, tragically killed about halfway through, Everybody is has no idea what's going on. As if nobody has read the Bible or is familiar at all with the Book but of Revelation. But strangely, almost every character, even the non-Christian ones, pepper in biblical <laughs> talk into their daily language. People don't do that. <laughs> I mean, you, yeah, you're not sitting with your friends and, well, consider the story from the Bible of Cain and Abel. That's exactly what this is like. Especially if you don't identify as a Christian, you're not going to do that. No. Even if you do identify as a Christian, you're probably not going to do that because your friends are going to be like, freak. I mean, I get it that the Bible is one of those things that's just weaved into the tapestry of a culture, right? Exactly. So if you noticed a bunch of empty clothes on the road <laughs> and the car is piling up, it wouldn't take you over an hour to think of Revelation. There's so many red flags. I mean, it's insane. I mean, what do you expect from a movie that has 16% on Rotten Tomatoes? <laughs> the pilot, he's lost his family, at least the family members that were good. And then he's so sad, crying, wah, wah, wah. But he still has Chloe, and for some reason Kirk Cameron is there. Chloe comes downstairs after realizing she's also lost her mother and brother. Nose ring gone, and she's dressed like she's ready for the PTA now. Yeah, that's right. She's maybe not there yet, but... I think the Holy Spirit is having an effect on that girl. What do you think? <laughs> but it's a good thing that nobody can figure out what's going on because the the train of the film, what motivates the characters to do things, especially Kirk Cameron, is that it's all a mystery. He has to seek out the truth and find the facts and find answers. So he goes over to his buddy Dirk's house. He finds that Dirk has been tragically killed. In two seconds flat, he finds a hidden disc of some sort in Dirk's watch, which he makes... He didn't even look anywhere else. Nowhere. He went straight for the watch. So I, I turned to Rachel. I was like, "Did was there a scene I missed where he told him, like, if anything happens to me, check my watch. It's important. It's always in the watch morning. <laughs> Goes to his computer, sees that he had gotten an email. Like, oh, that's suspicious. Emails. I mean, it's the apocalypse. My cell phone doesn't work, but the internet does. Nobody's making phone calls in this movie, but the internet still works. All the electricity is still on. Why can't you just use your phone at any time? That's convenient. There's a man outside 
with a sniper rifle trained on Kirk Cameron character's head and then slowly pans it over to the computer and shoots it. He's getting too close to the truth. He's getting too close to the truth. The this truth is... that is literally everywhere. <laughs> They're giving you the answer the whole movie long who the bad guys are. They couldn't make the villains more villainy. They do the Burns fingertips from The Simpsons. <laughs> Excellent. And he has a gross mustache. Of course you know who the bad guys are. Yeah, that's an easy one. Lazy filmmaking. Four million dollars worth of lazy filmmaking. Buck finds this computer disc, and after almost being killed, he goes to his co-worker's uh, place in New York, um, where she lives, I think, with her same-sex partner. Again, they didn't get raptured. Wonder why. Funnily enough, everybody that doesn't get raptured is the type of things that Kirk Cameron now complains about all the time. So, the gay couple. They did get raptured, but Kirk Cameron, you know, sorry gay people, he hates you. He's made it very clear. Lots of women don't get raptured, probably because they weren't submissive enough to their husbands. <clears throat> These are all things Kirk Cameron has said. Or maybe they took pain medication during their childbirth. Kirk Cameron hates you. There were people that saw the Ray Comfort video about how a banana is an atheist's worst, worst nightmare. And then they laughed at Ray Comfort. They're not getting raptured. They're not getting raptured. Ray's up there right now. Kicking it with JC. And lots of baby. Drinking some scissor. <laughs> <laughs> this movie goes on for an unbearably long time and nothing happens. You could boil this whole thing down to a 20 minute movie. Easily. There's a lot of buffer time. There's a lot of just... There's a lot of getting from one place to the other with nothing being said. There's a lot of overly dramatic music for really, really boring, non-dramatic shots. Like, a shot of Kirk Cameron going to his phone and trying to call somebody and talking for two seconds and then hang hanging up has this... You're like, what? Whoa, what's happening? <laughs> Is Kirk Cameron about to get knifed? It's so dramatic. At one point, the pilot goes to church, his wife's church, where we meet up with the guy from Walker, Texas Ranger. Conrad from Matlock. Clarence Gilliard is his real name. In the movie, he's Bruce. So meets up with Bruce. He hasn't been raptured. The pastor has made a tape for people to watch after he's been raptured so they know what's happening. Which they is a bit presumptuous. Very I'm sorry. much so. Rapture letters. Look it up. It's a real thing on the internet. You can read people's rapture letters. They watch the rapture tape and now they know they've been they've been left behind. In two seconds, the pilot is become a born again Christian and the most pompous jerk he, about the whole thing. He becomes the type of in your face born again Christian that make <laughs> Everybody want to just jump out of a window. You know, like his daughter is crying. She's lost her mother and her brother. And she's like, what are we going to do, Dad? What are we going to do? He's like, let's ask God what to do. He's just like, come on, bro. She's crying. <laughs> Give her a minute. Is the there anything useful we can do? The pretty airline stewardess. Whoa. Sorry. Whoa, the flight pretty, attendant, the, please. The pretty airline flight attendant comes to see the pilot in a last-ditch effort to, you know, with him. It's what it definitely seems. It seems like a booty call. She wants to Netflix and chill until Judgment Day. Yeah. But she leaves after he brandishes her away with his Bible. The way they have chosen to light this scene is very confusing. It's obvious they think the flight attendant is a bad person for even coming there. She's dressed in a cream suit, though, and they've lighted her like some sort of angel. And her blonde hair does give the halo effect. It's clear that they think the pilot is now a very good guy because he's born again. But he's wearing a all-black long-sleeved shirt, and they have him lighted where you can only really see yeah. his eyes like a 007 villain. Yeah, he's in the shadows. It looks like he's going to knife this chick if she doesn't get out of there with her thoughts of lust. He, he's in the shadows, she's angelic, which really conflicts with the nature of the scene. Because it's basically like, come away with me, Ray, it's gonna be okay. And he's like, no, I've been reading the Bible for 20 minutes, and I'm amazing now, and I'm so righteous, and it's incredible. I'm so much better than you. No, I'm a different person now. That's that's really a line from the movie. I'm a different person now. 
from five minutes ago. I know we just said 20 minutes ago, but seriously, it's from barely one scene to the next. He goes to the church for answers. He's only there for a couple of seconds and he's crying about how the Lord is moving through him. All he did was walk through the door. On his way through, some sand flew in his eyes, and... <laughs> he cried more about saying the Lord was working through him than discovering his wife and son were missing, and that's before he realized they were quote-unquote raptured, and he thought they were dead. Truly an inspiration for all of the... Children. <laughs> all of the 13-year-olds that were allowed to go see this movie. My brother was working at the theaters when The Passion came out, that's a hard R movie. People were bringing their, like, five-year-olds to that thing. Yep. Come on, Timmy. Gonna scar you for life. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is why we go every week. Mm-hmm. Isn't it delightful? Why are you crying, Timmy? He's crying because the Lord's working through him. <laughs> He's crying because he feels bad. He only put a dollar in the collection. <laughs> Jim Caviezel needs that money. Buck meets with some other guy, a complete rando who... I personally was confused who this guy was, but he's wearing a trench coat, so I'll buy it. They meet in a bar, they drink some beer, which is probably apple, apple juice. juice. Yeah, definitely apple juice. And then they they go out <laughs> to his car, and uh, Kirk Cameron is sort of like almost assaulted by this old lady to give, give her a dollar. She's and still wearing fancy earrings <laughs> as well, though. I mean, they could just take those away from her. She's really not struggling that much, is she? And he begrudgingly gives her the dollar, and his friend gives him this look like, oh, that buck, a uh, heart of gold on that one. Get if only he loved Jesus, he would have been raptured. <laughs> he gets in his, he gets in his car, and there's like an, and it explodes. It's a huge explosion. It's a too. casino level explosion. And then Kirk Cameron's character, as it explodes, he's looking at the explosion. He didn't understand cool guys don't look at explosions. And he's flipped onto his belly, lands on the ground, and somehow gashes the top of his thigh open? <laughs> I like to think that the makeup artist went to give him like a, a wound in a believable place, but it like spilled some of the blood on his pants. They were just like, ah, oh, screw it, just you know, smear it in. You know, that'll, that'll be fine. <laughs> it's amazing this movie has two makeup artists. That's the only makeup I see in the whole thing, and it just looks like they dumped a bu bunch of Cairo dyed red syrup right there. <laughs> well, they saved a lot of money on makeup by using the um, the Coke bottle filter. So bland and flat. So many burgundies, browns, beige, tans. It's a nude palette, but not in a pretty way. Right. The whole thing is just so bleh. Nobody has any color. There's no villain that's very colorful. There's no good guy that's very colorful. It's like they don't understand if you're going to make things that flat and boring, then there has to be something that pops out that lets your audience know this is definitely something you want to pay attention to. Like in old Disney animated movies, I knew things were bad when they glowed green. Is that lazy and simple? Yes, but it's also movies for children. What's this movie's excuse? Wow, you are asking the hard questions on this one, Rachel. Kurt Cameron, I demand answers. <laughs> Kurt Cameron's hurt. He's real. He's hurt real bad. He's hurt real bad. He never, ever has that wound revisited. He goes to the pilot's house. They help him fix what? it up. He goes to the pilot's That's house. That's it, though. Like, his leg is gashed wide open. They, like, dab some napkins on it. All right, we got that syrup off your pants. You're good to go. What's strange to me is that he went to the pilot's house, and the pilot had no gauze anywhere in his house. So they was like, oh, we'll take you down to the church. There's a nurse that can patch you up. And so it cuts to them in the church, and it's just the same characters that were in the last scene, plus a lady who is, like, tending to Kirk She says life. nothing. She says nothing. She was, we don't, they didn't have the money for her to say anything. Most of the budget was blown on that explosion. We're at one hour and 13 minutes into an hour and 30 minute film. When they're at the church and Conrad comes back into the scene to start reading passages from the Bible, explaining absolutely everything that we've been seeing so far. Every in this time movie. he comes on the screen, I'm just waiting for him to be like, come on, Walker. <laughs> <laughs> that would have made that movie. Would have made it something. Would have made it more than $200,000. <laughs> he does. He just explains literally everything you just watched, but he's holding a Bible, so it makes it so much more concrete, I guess. 
What's weird is I think this is supposed to be some sort of, maybe not like a, definitely not a climax, but I think this is supposed to be a big turning point where Kirk Cameron finally gets all of the answers that he's been looking for this whole time. It is supposed to be like a character arc moment. None of these characters have arc. <laughs> right. None of them. Bunch of people that uh, have not mentioned the Bible once throughout the entire film. In this scene, for like five minutes, they just quote scripture. Perfectly. Really, perfectly, and it's really weird. Beyond John 3.16, <laughs> which is the only thing most people can quote. Go ahead, Josh. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Preacher son. <laughs> for the win. The PK. Don't get me started on Jeopardy. <laughs> you know what we haven't talked about yet? We, we haven't talked about Nikolai. How have we missed it? Oh, Nikolai, I'll tell you how. Because you barely realize what his role is through 60% of the film. In the terrible unraveling of this flimsy premise, uh, we finally meet this fellow uh, Nikolai... Russian, Russian guy. It's such a trope to make the Russian character the bad guy. He looks like a beat-down Daniel Craig. He's the only character who's clothes fit him properly, though. Yeah, he's attractive. As scripture will tell us, when the Antichrist comes during the end times, he will be beautiful. You should see the look in Josh's eyes right now. He's just like, I hope it's me. <laughs> Take these nipple hairs away. <laughs> That's... I'm a supernatural being. The first thing that I'm going to do is like, took care of that nipple hair problem. What next? Uh-oh. Look out, booty. I'm going to be saving some toilet paper from now on. Josh is going to give all his nipple hairs to Robert Pattinson. Because <laughs> he obviously doesn't mind. <laughs> Nikolai's the bad guy. We got really distracted. <laughs> Nikolai's the bad guy. He's the Antichrist. But the, fl the flimsy premise is that he works for the UN. He's somewhat of a up-and-coming, wonderkins kind of guy, I guess. And then he somehow, through this tragedy of the rapture, although nobody's calling it the rapture because nobody has any idea what's going on, he finds a way to sort of become the, what is it, executive secretary? Like the top person in charge of the UN. He has Jedi mind control powers <laughs> that he uses to trick people into not realizing that he shot these two bad bankers. Because there were two bankers who are also bad. They're the ones that are comically obviously bad, doing the Mr. Burns excellent fingers and their gross mustaches and stuff. Which they twiddle. They do twiddle. The Kirk Cameron character has told Nikolai, like, oh, they're super bad. Well, they are. Let's have a meeting and bust this thing wide open. Nikolai shoots these two bad bankers, then uses his Jedi magic powers to make everyone think that they shot themselves. But Kirk Cameron remembers the truth because seconds before this meeting, <laughs> literally seconds before, in this flat, white, boring, overlit bathroom, he prays to the Lord in such an anti-Christian way. I, for one, don't consider myself a Christian. But I do know that when you pray and ask for things specifically for yourself, like, Lord, give me the answers. Show me the way. Do this stuff for me. You've kind of missed the point. Creator of the universe, put absolutely everything on hold and listen to my demands. That's the kind that's the kind of prayer it was. God help me, help me. I've never done this before and, and it's so whiny. On, on a bathroom floor, he's he's the 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 wretch of, you know, amazing grace, right? Uh, he's at his lowest point. He's on a bathroom floor in public. Ugh. It's like the cleanest bathroom you've ever seen in your life though. I mean, he didn't even struggle. He's still in his suit, his too big suit. And his tie, and he becomes one with the Lord. That's why he can see through Nikolai's Jedi mind tricks. It's it's so weak. Yeah, and what's strange about it is, you know, usually if the director is going to try to construct a scene where he's showing two things happening at once, or you know, one thing happening but other people 
perceiving it as something else. Um, there are certain ways that you can do that to actually visually show it. But in Left Behind, you just see Nikolai do all this stuff, basically like turn straight up evil, you know, talk to this dude, get his gun, shoot the two bankers. And then at the very end, you just see, you see, um, these two cops outside of a, a door, you have no idea where you are, and you just hear gunshots, and you see them rush in. And you're just like, okay, so he shot those two dudes, they did nothing, and they waited three minutes, and then we heard sh gunshots again, that's when they ran in. It's, the movie isn't even trying to imply that Nikolai has time-stopping powers. They didn't understand how to convey to us that nobody else outside of the room knew what was happening inside of the room. Yeah. Until the right time. It's strange, lazy, four million dollar movie. <laughs> that made almost no money. One of the original writers of the source material, the Left Behind book, was so dissatisfied with this version, with this Kirk Cameron one, that he actually sued the production company Cloud9 or with cloud 10. Oh, it's cloud 10. It goes one cloud high. We go one cloud higher. <laughs> you can feel the extra cloud. We crank it to 11. So he was so dissatisfied that he sued cloud 10 productions. And yet they still made two more with Kirk Cameron. That just shows I don't understand how law works. But <laughs> if you hated the first one that much, why would you be like, well, all right, make two more. <laughs> go ahead. Nikolai's the Antichrist, that's obvious now. We're all figuring that out. As slow-moving as this film is, the last five minutes or so are spent sort of setting up uh, the sequel because as we all know, and if you're following along with your Bibles at home, you'll know that... Um, you'll There's know that seven more years. After the rapture, yeah, there is the, the tribulation period. Um, which is what Left Behind 2 is called. I think it's called Left Behind 2 Tribulation. I believe that's correct. After the Nikolai thing, shooting people, boom, boom, Kirk Cameron just wanders away. He talks to one person who was in the room like, didn't you see what happened? Yeah, it was terrible. They killed themselves. And then Kirk Cameron just then realizes that nobody else quote-unquote saw what he saw. And then he just wanders away, like some background dialogue of Kirk Cameron's voiceover. And that's it. He goes back to church. And then they slow pan up, show the whole church with some like gospel music in the background. And that's it. Done. That's all you need. Almost it's two hours. Gospel music that, if I may, turns into one of the frishity freshest <laughs> pop songs. It's amazing. It's got it's this amazing pop song, like really, really early '90s type of pop song. Mild, like slight rapping in it. And where the lyrics are, when it comes down, I will not be left behind. Oh, it's amazing. I can see why. Josh, the, shh, I'm jamming now. <laughs> I can see why the why the Left Behind OST, that's original soundtrack, did so well on the charts. Well, on the Christian charts. Christian turns. So, all right, at the end of all this, I'm left with this feeling that if I were Christian, I would be... Bored. Really, actually insulted, because I feel like this film imagines that the, the entire audience is filled with morons. The books did so well, I feel like they thought they couldn't do anything wrong. <laughs> right. You yeah, barely they... have to try it. People want to consume this. They want it. We're going to give them the McDonald's double cheeseburger version of it. You know what? Leave off the... Give them the McDouble. They don't even deserve the double cheeseburger. It doesn't even matter, kid. Have you read the script? It's bulletproof. Hey. Yes. It's just so bad. There's, there's no inspiration. There's no character development. There's no real movement. It's a very stagnant feeling movie. It is. I feel I learned nothing past 20 minutes i learned there's nothing new to consume nothing new to learn nothing it's all the same stuff vomited it back out over and over again in different ways yeah it is very it's very static it's very wooden i mean i think if you slow down the tape yeah vhs if you slow down the vhs tape enough 
you can actually see stagehands like picking up the actors and moving them to other parts of of the scene. It's very lame. I know that's such a sad way to explain something, but it's so lame. And when we got to the end of it, I was just like, oh, thank you. We're not watching the other two, right? That's the real miracle, is that it ended. (laughs) That's what the back of the DVD blurb says. You survived. Not as long as some movies. (laughs) (laughs) I barely slept. This isn't even a good background noise movie. Like It's not even a good movie to have on while you're picking up and doing stuff. Because you might just throw your TV away just to make it stop. (laughs) So we've come to the part of the podcast where we ask the ultimate question. Rachel, do you think that Left Behind is a cash grab? Well, first, refresh my memory, Josh. What's a cash grab? Well, cash grab. Is any sort of film, music, book, really any sort of uh, artistic work that is made specifically to make money? And not at all for artistic merit. Well, that's the question. Do I feel this is a cash grab? Let me answer it with this math question. 16 left-behind books, including the prequels, sequels, and the original. If you bought the hardback, that's 25 a pop, $400. 40 books, novellas, made for teens. They were about $10 each. It's $400. That's $800 to buy the whole set for one family. The teen book sold 11 million about copies worldwide. The adult books about 28 million worldwide, not including the graphic novels, CD audiobooks, the music CDs, the movie soundtracks, and the five movies themselves. If you only talk about the books, you are talking about close to a $2 billion book franchise. Do I think this movie was made for money? Uh, yeah. I think the whole thing was made for money. The books, everything, money. These two writers can say they did it for Jesus all they want. All I can see is that they made $2 billion. Yeah, but you know, they gave a lot of that money back. Not a lot of people know this, but if you bought um, all the books, all the novellas, everything that Rachel just mentioned, um, you got somewhere close to $200 in coupons to (laughs) Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby and Cookout. (laughs) To be fair, I genuinely did try to look into what kind of charity work these authors give to because maybe I'm just cynical and see the dollar signs Maybe they did give a lot of money to charities, even if they were Christian charities. I couldn't find anything. Right. Not even on their official website. I mean, how are they going to be... They have to keep their money, Rachel. How are they going to be raptured if they're not flying first class? (laughs) (laughs) It's probably why the movie's so classist. Just so you know, according to this movie, if you've ever needed food stamps, you're definitely not getting raptured. <laughs> this was a film made by people who thought that the apocalypse meant suburbia had one homeless guy. <laughs> and one trash can overturn. And one abandoned shopping cart also overturned. But nothing else is out of place. They actually do a pan shot of this guy's house the pilot's house as he's leaving they do a pan shot and it's perfect it looks fine it looks perfectly fine we're actually i'm guessing here because they don't do a great job of telling you what time or how long it's been i'm guessing we're like two weeks past the rapture and his house still looks perfect it's not been ransacked there's no roaming roving gangs of any kind i mean I find myself to be a pretty honest person. Josh, I believe you are too. If over half the world's population got raptured, I just go in my neighbor's house and take stuff. <laughs> he's not going to be needing it. I mean, I will check, make sure he's definitely been raptured. And if he has, I'm taking all his stuff. I imagine he would want it that way. Yeah. He has transcended earthly goods. Exactly. And our neighbors, like, 
They already give us dinner sometimes for no reason, so they definitely want us to steal their stuff. Is it stealing if they're not even there? <laughs> I would say probably not. So Josh, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? I'm actually going to go in a different direction. I am going to say that this is not a Let me put an asterisk right on that because I totally agree with everything that you said. Your, your math is flawless and they have definitely fueled this entire franchise based on, it seems like, making money and spreading the word about Jesus. But really making money. That's what it seems like they're doing. When a film costs $4 million to make and gets a return of $200,000, you just kind of hope that everybody that made it did it for all the right reasons. I mean, I don't fault anybody for, uh, whether I agree with them or not, earnestly trying to make a movie. I think, you know, there's something to be said for that, even though they are quite empirically untalented and really, really misguided. I mean, I think you can make crappy art, but still try really hard, and it turned out to be garbage. We come, we come right back to Neil Breen. I do think that maybe now Neil Breen probably makes bad movies on purpose. I don't think so. I think I think he's still... That's just because you're in love with him. Yeah, I but am in love with Neil Breen. I do think at first Neil Breen wasn't trying to make bad art. He was just trying to make his version of art. I don't get the feeling that these people at Cloud 10 were trying to make art because why is everything so blue? Even visually, it's very unappealing. You could have wooden actors... Very poorly sound, very poorly lit, crappily edited, but the set's terrible, the costumes are bad, everyone's timing is super terrible. Even Kirk Cameron, he was on Growing Pains for all those years, you'd think that his acting timing would be better than it is. Well, I wonder if that's part of his contract, Well, except for the guy that, that was Conrad and Matlock. Kirk Cameron is probably the best actor in the film. Which isn't saying much. It's so not. <laughs> but maybe he wants it that way. Anyway, I take your point. Why Why was it so artless if they were trying to make art? I don't know. I think they just, I think they tried and failed. I, that's why I think it's not. A Hash crab. Still a terrible movie. Let's not gloss over <laughs> that. It is a piece of garbage. But I don't think it was a cash grab. Hmm. Well, there you have it. Yet again, 50% of viewers think this is not a cash grab. That's right. Just me and Josh. Kirk Cameron's Left Behind. Watch it on YouTube and decide for yourself. Thanks for listening to us again. Join us next week as we discuss, as we ruin my childhood by watching The Polar Bear King. Thanks for listening, everybody. 